You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. In connection with our sermon this morning, I'd invite you to turn in the New Testament to the second letter of Paul to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 6. In our text this morning from Philippians 4, we will read that Paul says, I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in every and any situation. Well, in his letter to the Corinthians, he outlines some of those situations for us. We put no stumbling block in anyone's path so that our ministry will not be discredited. Rather, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way in great endurance, in troubles, hardships, and distresses, in beatings, imprisonments, and riots, in hard work, sleepless nights, and hunger, in purity, understanding, patience, and kindness, in the Holy Spirit, and in sincere love, in truthful speech, and in the power of God, with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and in the left, through glory and dishonor, bad report and good report, genuine yet regarded as imposters, known, yet regarded as unknown, dying, yet we live on, beaten and yet not killed, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, poor yet making many rich, having nothing, yet possessing everything. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians, and opened wide our hearts to you. We are not withholding our affection from you, but you are withholding yours from us, As a fair exchange, I speak as to my children. Open wide your hearts also. Our text this morning is from Paul's letter to the Philippians, chapter 4. The verses 10 through 20. I rejoice greatly in the Lord, that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through Him who gives me strength. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles, Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out for Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid again and again when I was in need. Not that I'm looking for a gift, but I'm looking for what might may be credited to your account. I've received full payment and even more. I am amply supplied. Now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, they are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, we've just read together our text for this morning. And I wonder if you were to explain this text to someone, 
what would you say it's really all about? What's the, what's the one thing? What's the theme? If I were to ask you to write a sermon on this text and you were to say, and to say you had to make up a theme, what would it be? It's an interesting question. It's a question that quite obviously came to my mind this past week as I was looking at this text. There was a couple of options, shall we say. On one hand, I felt like entitling this sermon or making the theme of this sermon, Paul finally gets to the point. Paul finally gets to the point. Because that's really what he's doing here in our text this morning. It's not as if everything else that he's written in this letter was not important. It was not weighty. It was very weighty. As we've seen, as we've gone through this letter of the Apostle Paul, he speaks about life and death issues. He speaks about the glory of Christ and the unity of the church. Weighty things. But here, finally, in the last chapter, the last number of verses... He gets to the point, which is to thank the Philippians for a gift that they had given to him. It was delivered by Epaphroditus. You can see that in verse 18. That's the reason why Paul sat down to write this letter. Now he finally gets to the point. Perhaps you could also think of another theme for these verses, something like, Paul finally gets down to the uncomfortable business of talking about money. And there's there's a number of things from the words that Paul says even here that might lead you to think that that would be a good theme. First, you, you get the impression that Paul's a little uncomfortable here as he's talking about money. He No sooner does he does he say that he rejoices for this gift and he says, well, I didn't really need it. And then later he says, well, thanks for the gift, but I didn't want it anyways. He, he seems to be waffling back and forth. He's, he's fumbling over his words like a 15-year-old asking the girl to the winter banquet. Another reason why you might think that this is a, an uncomfortable topic for the apostle is that he leaves it right to the end of his letter. He talks about everything else first, then, then finally he mentions the money, and then he's done. And perhaps one other reason you might think of would be, well, he's talking about money. That's just an uncomfortable thing to do. So is this the case? Is Paul hesitant here as he talks about the gift that he's received and this exchange between him and the Philippians? Well, it doesn't really seem to be the case. Rather, if you look closely at these words, you realize that Paul isn't fumbling over his words. It's not that he doesn't know what to say, but rather that he's very deliberate about how he views this gift that he got from the Philippians. He wants to thank them, but yet at the same time, he wants to make clear to them how he views this gift. Also, if Paul did leave this matter till the end of the letter, it wasn't because he was uncomfortable In speaking about it, not at all. Look at some of the beautiful things that he says here. I rejoice greatly in the Lord. He says, I can do everything through Him who gives me strength. He says, your gifts are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice. To God be the glory. 
He's not uncomfortable talking about this gift at all. He, he's very comfortable talking about it. His beautiful expressions. Paul is really talking about a beautiful business. An expression of thanks and praise on the part of Philippians. And joy for the Apostle. And glory for the one only God. And so, we'll settle on to this theme. That the Apostle Paul gets down to the beautiful task of talking about the money. The Apostle Paul gets down to the beautiful task of talking about the money. And we'll see five things. Five things that this leads to as the Apostle Paul talks about this. It leads to a statement of joy. It leads to a confession of dependence. It leads to a desire for credit, a declaration of providence, and a doxology of praise. So the Apostle Paul gets down to the beautiful business of talking about the money. And this leads to, first, a statement of joy. It's a statement of joy. Look at the first words in our text. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. And he's referring there to the gift that he has received from Epaphroditus. Now think about that. Paul's talking about money. Paul's talking about joy. If I had just handed over to you a large gift of money, real dollars and cents, and it came from a whole bunch of people here in the church of Langley, what kind of joy do you think you would be experiencing at receiving that gift? What kind of joy would I be experiencing after receiving such a gift? Well, I can tell you what kind of joy it would likely be for me. It would be an unsanctified, self-centered kind of joy at the prospect of having all sorts of money to spend on whatever I wanted to spend it on. It's sad, but it's true. But is that the kind of joy that Paul is talking about here? What kind of joy did Paul experience? He says, I rejoice greatly in the Lord. He's not talking about some kind of self-centered joy. Now he has money to, to do what he wants according to his own desires and pleasures. In fact, Paul knows better. Remember, Paul Paul's wasn't stuck on the things of this world. Earlier in this letter, he said that even to die and to be with Christ is better by far. Paul's joy isn't grounded in himself or in, in, in what he might gain. His joy is grounded in the Lord, Jesus Christ. He received a gift from Philippians and then so he rejoices in the Lord. That means he rejoiced in, in what was being done through this gift. Not for himself, but for the Philippians and then even more for the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the way that it it goes with joy. Perhaps you've heard the, the way of explaining joy that goes precisely that way. That you find joy in Jesus, in others, and then in yourself. And in that order. Love and service to Jesus, that's the J. Others, that's the O. And then yourself, that's the Y. Joy. Now, that's not the reason why joy is spelt that way, but it does help us to remember 
what joy is all about and to get the priority straight. Joy is found, first of all, in love and service to Jesus Christ. And that's the kind of joy that Paul is experiencing here when he receives this gift. It's joy for the service of Jesus Christ. And then for the sake of the Philippians. And then last of all, for himself. You see, when our life is centered around Jesus Christ and and serving Him, then our joy is shifted away from ourselves, where actually we try to find joy for ourselves in the things that we ourselves want. We're not going to find much joy. But if you look outside, outside yourself and you want to serve the kingdom of Jesus Christ, then you experience real joy. And it makes sense, doesn't it? If you realize, if you believe that really this whole world is about God's glory. It's about what God is doing to restore His name and restore His worship. Then where would you hope to find joy except in Jesus Christ and in His powerful work to restore the glory of His Father in the hearts of men? We experience joy at the realization of what Jesus Christ is doing in this world. That's true generally, and that's true in particular here, as we see in our text, in matters of money. Matters relating to our wallet or our purse. Now, it often happens, doesn't it, that money is not the source of joy in our lives at all. It's a source of pain and and anger. We have a love-hate relationship with money. We love to have it, but we hate all the pain and grief that it brings us. Or even worry and anxiety. But that doesn't happen with Paul here. He doesn't say, well, thanks for the gift. Now i got to worry about what to do with this money. No, he rejoices in the Lord. Why? What's the secret? Well, it's because Paul's not focused on the money. That's not his concern. He's focused on the Lord Jesus Christ. He wants to see the kingdom of Christ move powerfully forward through the preaching of the gospel. And he wants the Philippians to live as partners of the gospel. He wants Jesus Christ to be glorified. He receives this gift for that purpose. And so he rejoices in the Lord. I wonder if the money issues are getting you down. Are you not experiencing joy because of money, but pain and sorrow and worry and anxiety? I imagine there are quite a few who are experiencing those things. Well, consider where your life's focus is. Are you concerned primarily with the Lord Jesus Christ and with His kingdom? Is that where your joy is found? Is that where you're pursuing joy? Because that's the only place where it's going to be found. If the Lord Jesus Christ is not your priority, if He isn't Lord Jesus Christ for you, then joy will escape you. Then money won't cause you to rejoice in the Lord. Money will cause you to worry and to fret, to suffer And to want. Whether you have lots or little, you'll want. 
So we come to the second thing that that talking about the money leads to for the Apostle Paul. It's a confession of dependence. We mentioned earlier that Paul seems to be a little hesitant here as he's talking to the Philippians. Perhaps he doesn't like talking about money. People don't like to talk about money in a lot of cultures. Maybe some of you are even getting uncomfortable that we keep talking about money this morning. But Paul's hesitance isn't based on the fact that he's afraid of offending someone or he just doesn't want to talk about money issues. No, his hesitance is exactly because of his dependence on Jesus Christ. Because his life is centered around Jesus Christ, on serving Him and advancing His kingdom, Paul wants to be very clear and deliberate about what that money that he receives means to him. Paul makes clear that even without the gift of the Philippians, he would have been fine. Why? How could that happen? The Philippians gave to Paul because he was in need, and he receives the gift and says, well, thanks, but actually I was fine well, then we wouldn't have given you the gift in the first place. But Paul can say that he would have been fine because he's learned the secret to being content in any and every circumstance. Paul even outlines the circumstances for the Philippians. He's known want of food and resources, and he's known plenty. He's had both, and yet he's been content. And we know from the book of Acts and our reading from 2 Corinthians that, that Paul really had known a lot of pain and need and want, as well as times of plenty. And yet, all that has done for the apostle is taught him about the priorities of life. And it's taught him that he can be content no matter what the circumstance Well, for someone hearing these words in Paul's context, and they would have heard that first statement, I know what it is, uh, no, verse 11, I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. They would have thought, oh, Paul's a Stoic. A Stoic. That was the ideal of the Stoics. To be content in any and every circumstance. Pain, pleasure, doesn't matter. I've learned to be content. A Stoic was ultimately about being self-dependent. They could rely on themselves, on their inner strength, on the focus of their mind and heart, and have, have contentment no matter what the circumstance. But for Paul, that's not the answer at all. That's not the secret. What is the secret? Paul says in verse 12, I've learned the secret of being content in any and every circumstance. Well, Paul's not the kind of person that I would want to tell a secret to. In fact, most of the people in the New Testament, it seems, are people that you wouldn't want to tell a secret to. Wasn't it every time the Lord Jesus told someone not to tell others about Him, they would go and immediately tell others about Him? It seems no one in the New Testament times could keep a secret very well. Well, here Paul is talking about the worst kept secret in the world. He says, I've learned the secret to being content in every and every circumstance. Well, I have news for you, all you young boys and girls. You like secrets? I'm going to tell you a secret this morning. Almost 2,000 years ago, Paul said he has a secret. Now I'm going to reveal to you what that secret is. What's the secret of being content? Whether you're hungry, or you have lots of food, whether you have no money, or you have lots of money, 
Well, it's right here. It's right in the next verse. I can do everything through Him who gives me strength. It's the worst kept secret in the world. No sooner does Paul bring it up than he tells us exactly what it is. It's depending on Jesus Christ. That's the secret. Paul says, I can do everything through Him who gives me strength. And don't doubt that he's talking about the Lord Jesus right there. The secret is not to look at your circumstances, how little you have, how much you have, but to look to Jesus Christ for your contentment, for your ability to overcome. Don't look inside yourself like the Stoic. Look outside yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it's possible to misunderstand Paul here, so let's clarify. He's not saying he can do absolutely everything through Jesus Christ. Of course not. He, he can't change the future. He can't suddenly assert his own strength or wisdom because Jesus Christ is on his side. To use a ridiculous example, Paul can't now bench press 500 pounds, right? That's not what he's talking about. That's not what he means to say at all. What his focus is on is that he's able to do anything not by himself, but because of Jesus Christ, through Jesus Christ. The opposite of a Stoic who depends on himself, Paul depends on Jesus Christ. It's only through Jesus Christ that I can do anything, and it's through Jesus Christ that I can do whatever he calls me to do with the resources that he supplies. And for Paul, as we know, this is no, this is no exercise in just affirming a truth. Yeah, I know about Jesus Christ and, and I probably could, if I needed to, depend on Him. No, Paul has depended on Jesus Christ throughout his whole life. He's learned to depend on Jesus Christ through blindness, through stoning, through threats, shipwreck, and persecution. He's learned through the trials of life to depend on Jesus Christ, the one who gives him strength. Wouldn't it be beautiful if we could learn to be content like the Apostle Paul? What would it take for us to to have Jesus Christ as our only source of strength? Because then money would lose its power over us. Then that that pursuit and the desire for wealth and riches would, would fade away. Then whatever God gives us could be used for His benefit and for His glory. Then money would cease to be the source of our pain and discontentedness. And it would become a beautiful source for contentedness and peace. What's the secret to that? What's the secret to all your, to overcoming all your worry and fretting about money? To all the pain that it's causing you? Depend on Jesus Christ. For everything. Whether well fed or hungry. Whether in plenty or in want. So Paul talking about the money also leads to a desire for credit. We already talked about the certain hesitance that it leads to on Paul's part, 
But he, he, he only really, in that hesitance, he wants to make sure that the Philippians know the secret that he knows. He wants to let the secret out. He's content in Christ. That's why he's content. He doesn't want money. He wants Jesus Christ. Remember he said earlier, I want to know Christ. The power of his resurrection. And the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. Well, as Paul goes on in our text, he indicates that he doesn't want the credit. Strangely enough, though, he doesn't say he wants God to have the credit. No, he wants the Philippian church to have the credit. What's he talking about? Well, the background for this is in verses 15 and 16. Paul mentions there that this Philippian church had been supporting Paul throughout his ministry, ever since he had left Macedonia, and that's where Philippi is. So once he had left the Philippians, they were, they were careful to look after his needs. This church has helped Paul out tremendously. And so Paul is looking for credit. Credit where credit is due. He knows that the Lord Jesus sees what the Philippians have been doing in the help of the gospel. And he wants the Philippians to know that. He wants them to know that Jesus Christ, too, sees what they're doing. He's saying, I don't rejoice in this gift primarily because of the help that it gives me, but because of the help that it gives for the work of Christ. And so he wants the Philippians, he wants to point the Philippians to the one who is ultimately being helped by their gift. And that's Christ. That's what he, that's what he means to do by bringing up this language of, of this being credited to their account. Well, who's the one who keeps the account? It's God. God has the record of the good deeds of the Philippians. We'll talk more this afternoon about the record that God keeps of good deeds. God has seen their generosity with their money. And Paul wants the Philippians to know that it doesn't go unnoticed by God. God will remember and reward such actions, both in this life and in the life to come. These gifts from the Philippians are intended for Paul, but the ultimate good that they do are for the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why Paul speaks about them in that sacrifice language uh, later in, in verse 18. They're a fragrant offering. They're, they're an acceptable sacrifice. They're pleasing to God. Deeds that are done for God's glory gifts that are given for the sake of Christ's kingdom and the advancements of the gospel, these are pleasing to God. The language there is of the Old Testament sacrifices, but but it's clear enough right here. It's all about the aroma that they bring to the Lord. They they please Him, just like a, a sweet smell does. God enjoys the sacrifices that His people make. God accepts them. God sees them. And He's pleased. So brothers and sisters, when, when you give your thank offerings today after the sermon, when you give your tithe for the sake of the ministry, the advance of the gospel, when you contribute financially in the help of the cause of Christ's kingdom building work in this world, then you're doing a God-pleasing task. It, it's not Odious, it's not uncomfortable at all to talk about these things. It's, it's beautiful to urge you to continue giving from what the Lord has given you for the sake of Christ's kingdom. It's beautiful because it's pleasing to God. What might be credited to your account? 
What might you do to present a pleasing offering to God? Well, give your money for the sake of His kingdom. That's what. That's what the Apostle Paul teaches us. So it leads to a desire for credit, talking about money. It also leads to a declaration of providence. Don't worry about doing this, Paul goes on to say. Don't fret about where the money is going to come from. Or exactly what will happen to it. Why not? Well, do you know the one for whom you're giving all this? You're giving all this for the sake of the Lord. For His kingdom, right? You know that He's the one who's ultimately benefiting from it? Well, He's the same one who provides you with all your needs. Who will give you whatever you need from day to day. Verse 19, that's where he says it. It's striking. And my God will meet all your needs according to His glorious riches in Christ Jesus. God gives to you. You give to God. God gives to you. That's how it works. The Old Testament counterpart to this is Malachi 3, verses 8 and following, where Malachi asked the question of the people of God, will a man rob God? How do you rob God, they ask? In tithes and offerings. You're not bringing the whole tithe and offering. Have you considered that? It's possible, actually, to rob God. When you don't give your tithe, you rob God. When your bank statement that you receive at the end of every month has no relation whatsoever to the kingdom of God. You're robbing God. When your budget excludes the work of Jesus Christ, you're robbing God. It goes to, it goes without saying that you shouldn't rob God. But even more, you have absolutely no reason to. Because God can richly supply you with whatever you need. In Malachi 3, God says, bring the whole tithe and see if I don't open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing on you that you won't have enough room for it all. The principle is simple. God's the one who supplies all your needs. He has an abundant storehouse of provisions. He has more than you could ever physically need, more than you could ever materially need, more than you could ever ever spiritually need. Look what it says here in verse 19. God will meet all your needs according to His glorious riches in Christ Jesus. What riches do we have in Christ? Eternal life. Inheritance of the new heavens and the new earth. Atonement for our sins. Peace with God. Love and blessing. And all that we need as God's children. And so, we give. and Keep on giving. And give generously. And give for God's kingdom and glory. Give in dependence on Jesus Christ. And don't worry. Because the one to whom you're giving is the same one who controls the floodgates of heaven. He will meet your needs. He might bring you through hunger and want. He might give you plenty and riches. But He will meet your needs. 
And finally, we come to the final, the ultimate result of this money talk and the most beautiful part of it of all, God's glory. At the end of it, that's what it's really all about. It's all about God. It's all about God's glory. For someone who's who's stunned and awed by the glory of God, someone who humbles themselves before God and desires that God would get the glory, then everything in life becomes an opportunity to give God the glory and to see God get the glory. So often money issues are fraught with problems, fraught with pain, fraught with worry. That's sin. But when God gets the glory, then it becomes a beautiful thing. When the money talk is focused on ourselves and on our kingdom, it becomes despicable. If you're holding on to your money for the sake of your desires, talking about money brings no glory to God. It leaves God out of the equation. If I was talking about money in order to fill my own pockets, to feed my greed, then this would be a most shameful sermon. But when the end goal is not our glory, or the glory of another, but for God's glory, then speaking about the gifts that you give, speaking about the ample supply of my needs and the needs of others involved in proclaiming the gospel is a beautiful thing. To God be the glory, forever and ever. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.